Chief Justice, may it please the court. I'm Giancarlo Conoparo. I'm Zach Smith. And welcome to SCOTUS 101, where we break down what's happening at the Supreme Court, what the justices are up to, and other things related to our favorite branch of government. Welcome to a special episode of SCOTUS 101. It was a relatively quiet week at the court, but we have a very special interview for everyone this week. GC, who'd we have on? We had former Vice President Mike Pence. That's right. So listen up to our conversation with Vice President Pence. Well, Vice President Pence, welcome to SCOTUS 101. It's an honor to have you on. Thank you, man. Good to be with you. And great to be back at Heritage Foundation. Well, great to well, have thank you. you. Well, I wanted to start off with your own legal background. Uh, you got your law degree from uh, the Robert McKinney School of Law in Indiana. Uh, two years later, you ran for Congress. Uh, when you went to law school, did you know you were going to go into politics? John Carlo, I, uh, honestly, um, I hoped I did. I didn't know if I would. I hoped I, <laughs> I hoped I had a future in public service. Uh, from very early on in my life, I just was inspired by the example of John F. Kennedy and the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And um, uh, I, and I, even though I, I grew up, I was the grandson of an Irish immigrant. And my dad ran gas stations. We weren't a particularly prominent, and we certainly weren't a political family. Um, we um, I had that I had that in my heart, and so I studied American history in undergraduate and. And then I thought uh, a law degree and a law career would give a good foundation uh, for public service. And I've never thought otherwise, you know, to to have been elected to Congress um, many years after my first try. Um, I was appointed to the Judiciary Committee and just the days immediately after 9-11. And then I would serve there throughout the the next 11 years in the Congress of the United States. And so I'm, I'm grateful for that foundation. I uh, I can't say I loved law school, but uh, <laughs> I love the law. Well, I wanted to talk about judges, if we could, uh, sure. for a minute, Mr. Vice President. I know as governor of Indiana, you were involved in appointing judges to the state courts there. Yes. And as vice president, you were involved in recommending judges to the federal bench. So I have two questions for you. Uh, what do you think are qualities that make for a good judge? And how would you describe your judicial philosophy? Well, I, you know, I'm a conservative. Um, a strict constructionist mm. when it comes to the Constitution, both of the United States and the state of Indiana. I think the founders of our nation, the founders of my state, put words on a page because they expected them to be followed. If you want to change it, amend it. Mm. So I'm not a I'm not a great fan of activist judges or people that legislate from the bench. Sure. So when I was governor of Indiana, we we were looking for. Men and women to appoint to our our courts that reflected that philosophy, and I'm incredibly proud uh, of uh, of the uh, the judges that I appointed during that time. And I was very humbled to have the opportunity to participate in um, in the interview process for what would be uh, uh, ultimately three justices on the Supreme Court of the United States. The, it was literally during the transition, if you'll remember, the, the seat held by the late and great Justice Antonin Scalia was held open for a year, right? thankfully. Right. And so literally during our transition, we were interviewing about 10 finalists. Uh, and the president-elect looked at me and said, I'd like you to talk to the finalists and give me your impressions. And, um, uh, and I did. I was honored to do that and uh, uh, did that again uh, in the second round. Um, 
the third round um, was um, uh, went quickly, as you remember, and history records. And, Absolutely. Uh, uh, my affinity for Indiana Justice Amy Coney Barrett would probably be fairly well <laughs> assumed. So, um, but it, you know, again, for me, it came down to when I was making the decisions or when I was advising a president was first integrity. Mm. When you um, when you make a lifetime appointment, and some of the uh, some of the justices on the Indiana Supreme Court are still there to this day. Um, you know, nearly a decade after I appointed them. I saw a few of them at a banquet uh, in downtown Indianapolis just last week and uh, was so proud of the work that they're doing. When you make a lifetime appointment, you're vesting an extraordinary amount of authority and responsibility in any man or woman. And so you want to know that they've uh, they've got a foundation of integrity, Sure, that they'll be men and women who will keep their word. And But then beyond that, it's just philosophy of uh, of uh, the law, and, and uh, again, to to have someone who will uphold the law, not seek to rewrite the law. Right. And I have to tell you, I'm not just proud of the three justices that uh, uh, that President Trump appointed to the Supreme Court, but the, some 300 judges that we appointed. I absolutely. I think we, uh, in so many ways, have an extraordinary legacy uh, of strengthening the the conservative foundations in our judiciary just from those 300 judges. So on that front, uh, the three Supreme Court justices, all of the lower court justices, can you give us a sense of uh, your role in sort of that broader selection, nomination, confirmation process, and maybe a little bit of the inside baseball? Sure. In fact, I wrote about this in my book. My book comes out in about a month. It's entitled, So Help Me God. And I wrote about the process. Um, you know, it it seems like a, there's been a different set of rules on the Democrat side of the aisle. When it came down to one particular issue, they wanted to know how judges would rule. Mm. But that's actually not proper. Um, and no judge worth their salt would ever go through a confirmation process and say how they would rule on a case that may or may not come before them. So I would just speak about judicial philosophy. I would uh, really explore what um, their education background was, what their – uh, what what uh, other members of the judiciary that they admired. But I always ended my interviews the same way. I would say to the nominee or the potential nominee, I would say, if the president did not choose you, who would you recommend off the public list <laughs> that they do recommend? It's a good and, question. <laughs> uh, well, I, I I will tell you, in the first round, there were about 10 finalists. And seven of them said Neil Gorsuch. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um, but as I write in my book, Neil had a very Gorsuch-like response. It was a, kind of a brilliant, reflective, thoughtful response. Um, uh, but the other judges are the same. I, I write more about that in the book. Um, but it was um, – to me, it was almost more insightful to hear who they would recommend. Mm. Um, than it was to, you know, speak in in larger philosophical terms, and uh, and then as I said, I I would share my opinion with the president and no one else. Um, occasionally, some senior White House staff would come up and say, "Well, you're you like this judge, right?" And I'd say, "The president knows who I like," <laughs> because I really believe that um, the authority that's vested in the president of the United States to make uh, the appointment of judges to our courts is. Um, uh, it's an awesome responsibility, and uh, I wa- always wanted the president to know that uh, he would have my full counsel, 
uh, but that whoever he would choose uh, would be the person I would say was the right choice. And um, and so we went that we went through the process like that. Is there anything you would do differently with respect to the judicial selection process? Well, I. I I would tell you that whether it be Don McGahn, who was White House counsel at the outset of our administration, or Pat Cipollone, um, I actually think our team did a masterful job uh, identifying men and women with proven commitment to um, to a judicial philosophy that um, that you know the Federalist Society members around the country have celebrated. Uh, uh, and and so I feel like it was a very forthright process, mm-hmm. and I do give President Trump an, an awful lot of credit for um, in the 2016 campaign. There was, was obviously he was a a new figure on the national stage. People didn't know him. In fact, he'd had a diverse political background in terms of people he had supported, and so there was a concern about the kind of judges he would appoint. And he dealt with it as he dealt with many things, just forthrightly and said, here's the list of people I will choose from. And I can tell you, Zach, that's exactly what he did. Mm-hmm. Um, the list would grow a bit, uh, more more people, but they were all people that were aligned with the, the strict constructionist philosophies, synonymous with the late Justice Antonin Scalia, with the great mm-hmm. Justice Clarence Thomas um, and um, – and I'm actually very, very proud of that record. And we all, we did it all with with integrity of respecting the judges' independence as well. Sure. But I will I will tell you I, I, I mentioned him there just in passing. But you know when uh, when we were going through the transition in late 2016, early 2017, it was a busy time, and someone happened to mention to me uh, that the president is sworn in by the chief justice of the Supreme Court, but the vice president is as well, unless they want to be sworn in by someone else. It didn't take me too long to decide. <laughs> I, I, uh, I picked up the phone. I called Clarence Thomas. and uh, Fantastic. Uh, I had one of the most memorable conversations uh, anyone at that level I've ever had in my life. I was, I was deeply humbled by it because he knew why I was calling. Mm-hmm. I was crossing one of the bridges into downtown New York at the time, I'm headed to Trump Tower for transition meetings. And uh, and I said, Justice Thomas, I'd, you know, it'd be my great honor if you would administer the oath of office on January the 20th. Mm. And I'll never forget, and again, I wrote about this in my book, but Justice Clarence Thomas said to me, the honor is all mine. Mm. He said, Mike, you just, you don't know what this means to me. He said, I mean, for me to be the, you know, the grandson of a sharecropper, mm. um, you a small town kid from southern Indiana and the two of us are going to be standing up there, me administering the oath for you to become the vice president of the United States. He said it in, in hushed tones. I could hear the emotion in his voice and it just reminded me why I admire Clarence Thomas so much because he loves this country and he understands uh, what makes this country truly special. Absolutely. Vice President, what do you make right now this such an enormous – uh, backlash against the court as an institution itself on the left, packing the court, uh, term limits for justices. The court is illegitimate. What do you make of all of that? It's reckless and irresponsible. And um, voices on the American left, especially the leadership that you see from the likes of Chuck Schumer, need to be called out on it and called out on it hard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but it's but it's nothing new. I remember. Um, 
Chuck Schumer shaking his fist on the steps of the Supreme Court mm-hmm. and naming Supreme Court justices and saying that you will you will hear from us. You will that, that, come on. I mean, at, at the center of our republic is an independent judiciary, and um, uh, the Democrats, right up until it seems like the Dobbs decision, thought that was a pretty good thing. But now that we have a conservative majority solidly, suddenly we're we're back to talking about packing the court, adding seats on the court, changing the jurisdiction of the court in the Congress of the United States, and uh, uh, I just think it all it all has to be opposed and has to be rejected. Um, you know, I, I'm pro life. I don't apologize for it. I think the Supreme Court of the United States, as I said here at Heritage Foundation today. Sent Roe versus Wade to the ash heap of history where it belongs and gave our nation a new beginning for life. But I also think some that a side benefit of the Dobbs decision might be uh, restoring the luster and the independence ultimately of the Supreme Court uh, if we don't allow people to demean it because uh, they're trying to, again, advance uh, their leftist agenda through the judiciary instead of through the political process. Because if you rightly understand the Dobbs decision, all it did was return the question of life to the states and to the American people right? and where it belongs and, and to be worked through in accordance with the democratic process and the dictates of people's consciences. Now, I will always, for as long as I'm on this earth, I'll continue to champion and fight to restore the sanctity of life to the center of American law. But now now it's a fair fight. Mm-hmm. Let's go out. Let's persuade. Let's with compassion and right. with principle. Let's go out and make the case for life. And But I think by taking that out of the court, and I think you saw several of the justices um, who made up that majority reflect on that, that, that it had eroded public confidence because the American mm-hmm. people knew in their heart of hearts 49 years ago uh, the Supreme Court usurped right. the will of the American people. I mean, I'm not happy ab- uh, to report it, but actually abortion laws were changing in America in some states. And I, I would have I lived in those times and in those states and, and been on the side of life in every case. But it was changing and the American people were making changes, some creating greater safeguards and some expanding access to abortion in a democratic process. And the court just took it all away. Mm-hmm. And I... I couldn't be more proud of the people of this country who for 49 years just never gave up on not just on the sanctity of life and the defense of the unborn, but in a very real sense, the defense of a democratic principle. And I think by returning that question, uh, I I think in time uh, we'll restore uh, whatever is the waning credibility of the court and the independent judiciary in this country. Well, we have a final question for you, Mr. Vice President. It's a question we ask all of our guests here on SCOTUS 101. If you could have a conversation with any Supreme Court justice, living or dead, who would it be and what would you talk about? <laughs> well, that's an easy one. And it's great to be on SCOTUS 101. I appreciate what you do. This is an important platform. Well, thank you. And I know millions of people around the country appreciate your thoughtful reflection on our judiciary and um, – I, I will tell you the foundation I created has been very involved in amicus briefs that have been filed. We look forward maybe to having our team over here and talking to you about us, weighing in on behalf of freedom of speech, Second Amendment, um, and of course the freedom of religion 
which is our first freedom. But the Supreme Court justice or the judge that I would talk to, Pastor President, I I would tell you, uh, for me, John Marshall would be a very interesting person to talk to, the the first chief justice of the Supreme Court. I'm a student of the American founding. I he he was the the one that essentially stepped forward and said that the court would be the arbiter of constitutionality and uh, not just not just settling disputes between private citizens. And I think it was a great uh, contribution to the life of the nation. But if I had to choose, um, any day of the week, I'd love to catch up with Justice Amy Coney Barrett. I, I, will, <laughs> I will tell you, she. Uh, and not just because she's a Hoosier, you know, from Indiana, but the fact that I, I just, uh, I've admired her for so long, uh, came to know her and her family through the process, uh, and uh, as the American people saw, she is, she is a brilliant jurist, but she's also a, dedicated to her family and dedicated to her marriage and her children, and the combination of those two things I think is so deeply inspiring that mm-hmm. that someone can achieve the heights that she's achieved, the brilliance, the success in her career, and still be unapologetic about uh, how much mm-hmm. she loves to be a mom. She she reminds me of the school teacher I've been married to for 37 years. My, <laughs> my wife was valedictorian of her high school class and finished mm-hmm. college in three years with highest honors, and uh, she's... Uh, She's a remarkable person, and she celebrates 30 years in the classroom, continues to be involved in education, particularly Christian education. But, uh, you know, she loves her kids. She loves her uh, son-in-laws and daughter-in-law, and she really loves that granddaughter. And, uh, so <laughs> when you get around Amy Coney Barrett, there's that special combination um, and I'd take any chance to catch up with her and just tell her how proud Indiana is and how proud America is. Uh, for the role she's playing in the life of the nation, and uh, um, and uh, and the role she's playing, I know, in strengthening the foundations of liberty uh, in the judiciary of America. Well, Vice President Pence, it's been such a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Great to be with you all. Thank you, Mr. Vice President. Well, thank you all for listening to our interview with Vice President Pence. That's all we have for today. Thank you to everyone for listening to SCOTUS 101. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen. And as always, we'd appreciate if you left us a five-star rating. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at SCOTUS101 and email us at SCOTUS101 at heritage.org with your questions, comments, or ideas for future shows. You've been listening to SCOTUS 101, brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. Executive produced by Giancarlo Canaparo and Zach Smith. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, visit heritage.org.